Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 33rd Blockbuster episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that flashes back on burial rights every time MTG Finance dies. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering finance, collection management, and speculation. I'm your host, James Chilcott, a.k.a. MTG Critic on the interwebs. My co-host is Travis Allen, a.k.a. at Wizard Bumpin', and we're here to help you guys make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Good evening, everybody. Glad to be here and looking forward to sharing some great information with you guys and James again this week. Welcome back. Our show is sponsored by mtgprice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at mtgprice.com to manage your collection, track your specs, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. Travis, break down the agenda for me this week. I'm coming fresh back from a couple of weeks of vacation and uh, all the excitement I felt while I was uh, dragging my uh, lifeless corpse off the surfer's beach uh, to find that these expeditions were being extended all over the place. Sure. Well, I'm. you've probably forgotten, but our show has four segments. Segment one is our top movers, where we're going to look at the cards that have changed the most in value over the past week. Segment two is cards to watch, where we'll be looking at cards that we think have financial upside. Segment three is our metagame week in review. This week, we'll be talking about the legacy tournament from Bazaar of Moxen. And finally, segment four, topic of the week. This week, we're going to touch on the Masterpiece series and the quote-unquote death of magic finance. So let's hop right in at the top on segment one, top movers. Uh, I'm going to let you start us off this week. Sure thing. So first big mover of the week is foil copies of engineered explosives. And we're talking about the Modern Masters 2013 printing. Um, Foils have uh, been in hot demand over the last few months as it's become a more uh, prevalent card in sideboards and modern um, the foils have moved from 60 to almost $90 this week uh, for a 48% gain, and uh, this may be a card that's due for another reprint, and I'm curious whether we're going to get it next summer in Modern Masters 2017. It's certainly on the table, and I wouldn't be surprised to see it show up. We got it in the first one. They skipped Modern Masters 2, but that's definitely a card they could run back, and I think they've had enough time since then to know. Yeah, and I think if you're sitting on any copies of this, uh, foil and non-foil that have both exploded recently, um, uh, now is a good time to get out. Um, with the the slate of reprints uh, and the fact that this card's already been targeted for reprinting once in the last five years, um, there, if it had been in the last Modern Masters set, I would be l- thinking that it was less likely to see a printing again this year. Um, but given that it was, it's going to be you know, four years solid by the time um, 2017 rolls out next spring, um, you know, it's definitely in danger and you've you've got a, a very solid gain already on the table that you can reap the rewards of and move on. Yeah, and it is just so plump at this point with value. Mm-hmm. I would not want to be hanging on the spare copies. Yep. So tell me about Treachery. Next on our list is Treachery from Urza's Destiny. Uh, we've seen the price go from about 16 to 24. Um, you know, the market price has not quite caught up with this guy yet. Um, it's still showing a cost of uh, $17, um, but I'm looking at TCG player right now, and there are no near mint copies left really under 30. Uh, and even if you take off near mint, when you start looking at lightly played, um, there's none under 20 either. Uh, so definitely 
a lot of movement on this card recently, and I wouldn't be surprised uh, to see this at forty to fifty dollars um, next week, pretty much. Yeah, I mean, this is the second or third attack on this card as part of the kind of rolling um, draining of reserve list cards from the marketplace that's been going on um, from uh, early last winter. Um, I've got a spreadsheet that was tracking available inventory on most of the relevant reserve list cards dating back to middle of February, at which point I uh, I had 20 near mint copies on TCG, 30 on eBay, um, and a, to- a smattering of 10 or 15 copies uh, s- scattered between the vendors that we track on MTG price. So there was about 50 copies available in the marketplace, and the average available price was about $13. So even if you compare the, you know, the 12 or 13 you would have you would have been tracking these down at in the winter to the 17 being paid at market price now, and the likelihood that that market price is going to get dragged up into the 20 to $25 range minimum, um, very solid returns on yet another reserve list card. Definitely. And as I'm sitting here looking at this, I see that the foil market price is close to $100. And there's currently a foil available for $75 from Tokyo MTG. Seems like it's probably a sweet little pickup at the very least if you need one for yourself. Um, so the foils might not be too far behind here. And and I especially like that the Japanese uh, ratings on condition tend to be the most stringent in the market. Following up on Treachery's Heels or perhaps vice versa, is Brushland from 7th edition. Came in the week a little over $10, and it's now pushing 20 for about a 60 to 70% gain. This is purely Bant Eldrazi in modern. This is essentially a tri-land for that deck. It does everything they want it to do. Green, white, color, uh, waste mana, I guess, colorless mana. So um, a very strong card in that strategy um the, these pain lands have been really interesting to watch for those of us that have been around for a long time they were worthless for so long they printed colorless mana and suddenly there's so much demand on them uh and especially when you consider how many of them there are uh and yet they're still really clawing their way up the price uh, the price tree here. It's it's interesting to see that, how that's played out. Yeah, I mean, nothing warms the heart of the bulk guys more than the <laughs> fact that the pain lands went from dollar lands to 10 to $15 lands in modern. I mean, none of yes. us saw that coming. Yeah, that was caught us all off guard. Um, wish... Wish I had thought more about that when the Eldrazi were spoiled, but I don't <laughs> think I don't think anyone could have really reasonably looked at the volume of pain lands out there in the market and said, yes, these are going to be nearly twenty dollars. Yeah, I mean there has to be some hoarding going on. There's, there's just I, I I buy that the the cards are important in that archetype and tri lands are no joke in modern. Um, but uh, at, at some point, vendors just picked up hundreds of copies of these and stashed them away and started bleeding them out slowly into the marketplace um, because. You know, when this all started, when the price movement started as the the Eldrazi decks won the Pro Tour in the winter, and it was, you know, not entirely clear what or how that deck was going to be dealt with or banned or not banned, um, you know, copies of this were evaporating at a very, uh, this and um, the white-blue one and the the black-white one after the Frank Lepore deck um, were all about, you know, draining very quickly out of the marketplace, uh, more quickly than people were picking up the deck. And 
you know, all of us got, you know, I got caught off guard, you got caught off guard, everybody who's got bulk got caught off guard, but we all also had 20, 30, 40, 50 copies of these things lying around um, and have had opportunities to, to sell them. Um, but I'm still holding uh, tons of in, you know, inventory on this. And I have to imagine that a lot of the kind of old school MTG finance folks um, also have a you know, small pile of these on their desk and they're figuring out when they want to pull the trigger. Um, now it looks as good as, as any time, really. These, are, these prices are extremely solid on something that was basically sitting in your bulk box. I think every week for the last two, three months has looked like any a good enough time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's just like, oh, this can't possibly go anymore. You know, Painlands are $6. Oh, man, that's they've been 20 cents for so long. There's no way they, this isn't worth selling. Now they're 18. Yeah, I thought I thought I thought rotation after the double printing in the core sets was going to was going to kill them um, post rotation. But it just it's not happening. Um, and, uh, leads me to believe that, you know, the, the combination of modern play and casual requirements for various Eldrazi style decks, um, you know, may float these for longer than anticipated. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, why don't you go ahead and take the next one for us? So the next big foil on the list this week is Life from the Loam out of the original Ravnica printing. Um, it's moved from about $50 to, to the $80 to $90 range. It's a low stock foil. Various dredge strategies have been looking better and better all summer. And uh, I'm not surprised to see this one making a move. No, especially with that uh, card having been printed whose uh, cathartic reunion definitely is making Life from the Loam a little more exciting. I don't know if this price... Can jump was really connected to that but uh definitely in that same vein uh that being the upgraded tormenting voice uh the the pitch to draw three so um yeah you know i the this this, these pack foil life from the loams i think this is like the second or third time it's popped up on our top mover list too just one copy gets listed it gets sold the price changes dramatically and my dogs uh are all very upset about it (laughs) one second I'll, i'll let that die down yeah, so Cathartic Reunion, um, one in a red for a sorcery out of Kaladesh. Uh, it's a common, um, but foils may be a thing to pick up if you can get them cheap. Um, as an additional cost to cast Cathartic Reunion, discard two cards, draw three. I mean, draw three in Dredge is just hey, potentially hey, crazy. Don't get, too, don't get too far ahead of my segment two here, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. I'll, I'll, I'll leave it be. So next on the list? Uh, yeah, next on the list is Amulet of Vigor, uh, a returning... Returning friend here, uh, the World Wake Foils came in the week around 20, 13. They're hanging around 24. We're looking about 80% gain. Um, the reason for this is the same that it's been every time we've had reason to talk about this card. It's the Amulet Bloom deck, except now it's not Amulet Bloom. It is Amulet Scout. Um, they essentially replaced uh, Summer Bloom with Sakura Tribe Scout. Tap it to put a land into play. So a little bit slower, but still apparently good enough to get the job done, at least while nobody is bothering to play Blood Moon. Um, So supply on these has got to be pretty much gone at this point. Yeah, I mean, definitely uh, they're draining out of the market. I'm still seeing, you know, a bunch of, of copies uh, kind of scattered around the internet, but the foils on TCG are down to... Uh, you know, one vendor with two copies around 22. Uh, one guy's got 12 copies that he must have spec'd on earlier up at uh, uh, 21. And then uh, QED has his at uh, 30. Um, I'm sitting on 20 of these uh, that I picked up at around 10. Um, timing seems fine to get out now. 
Um, but given the low supply, we may be able to see this hit 25 or 30 in the next couple months. Um, depends how well that deck keeps uh, performing in modern. I'd like to see it put up another big result or two, um, and then I would feel confident to hold for another spike. Yeah, this is one of those cards that could kind of settle in the 15 to $20 range and not move again, or it's one where the foil could just be $40 and people just accept that for what it is. It's, um, I feel like it's really difficult to peg the foil value on a card like this uh, in this range. So if you've got them, go ahead and sell them, take the profit, and uh, you know don't be upset if it manages to, to squeak out another 10 bucks. Uh, refresh my surf addled brain. Um, is World Wake a target for Ma- Modern Masters 2017? Yeah, uh, yes, and it was in fact it was involved in Modern Masters 2 as well, 2015, because it's uh the Zendikar block, World Wake is part of the Zendikar block and that was in the last Modern Masters. Yeah, so we're probably getting uh an amulet reprinting this year, uh one way or the other. Um either it's one of the masterpieces in the next Kaladesh set, um or it's that and it's included in Modern Masters 2017 or maybe it's only in 2017, but Either way, I think this fall is when I want to be unloading these. So the biggest mover of the week is Dwarven Recruiter out of the Odyssey block, um, one of the only playable dwarves uh, available when people started looking um, and as they got excited at the presence of dwarves in Kaladesh. It was a bulk card at 50 cents or so. It's moved up to about $3 um, for a 650% gain. Um, It's possible you're going to have trouble outing these at that price, though. Um, yes, it's a, it's an important dwarf if dwarfs is an archetype in casual circles, but there really isn't enough dwarf support yet in Kaladesh to put together a really cool dwarf deck. Um, they're largely kind of a, a throw-in tribe with uh, a relatively limited sub-theme, and they're in a new color, so it's not like you get to tack them on to pre-existing cards for the most part. In the past, dwarves were mostly red and then red and black in the Odyssey block, um, so... Uh, you know, if you can trade these out in the three to four dollar range, uh, by all means, do so. Yeah, yeah, this was uh, I actually tweeted about this a little while ago because I went looking for <laughs> looking for dwarves to pick up in response to the announcement that they would be in white red in Kaladesh and just found, found nothing. I was like, oh, there's just literally nothing. And I saw Dwarven Recruiter. I was like, eh, there's nothing worth getting. But it's, I guess if they print any dwarves, it's worth picking up. So I have like, I don't know, three play sets. But um, I think I paid like in the dollar range. So I'm just going to kind of hang out and hope they pop up in a little greater number in Aether Revolt or something like that. We'll see. Yeah, my guess is in four or five years when we return to Kaladesh, um, which seems likely, the... You know, at that point, maybe we get enough dwarfs, but I'm not excited about dwarfs as a tribe yet. Um, we're highly unlikely to get them on Nicol Bolas's uh, Egyptian-fueled plane, and uh, I can't see them dipping into that well again all too soon. All right, so moving on to our cards to watch this week. Um, I'll dive in with my first pick, uh, uh, and this is a, a, a easy bunt. Um, I think. There are still some copies of Treachery lying around in your local metagame um, under $20 and, you know, in people's trade binders and what have you. And the long and the short of it is that they're, they're never going to print a more broken control magic card. Um, the fact that this, you know, for one extra mana untaps all your lands is just all sorts of broken. They keep printing these control magic type effects over and over again, but they never even approximate um, the power of treachery. So as a um, EDH card, as a cube card, um, as a reserve list card that's never getting reprinted, 
Um, you know, the, the odds that you can get your hands on copies in and around $20 and ride them up to 30 over the next you know, year or two um, look very good to me, even given the, the current uh, spike. So, I mean, I've got some that I was tucking away in the $13 to $14 range. Um, I'm happy to pick up some more at this price point, and I think that this card only goes up from here. Treachery is an interesting card. That untapped mechanic is so distinct um, and so powerful in every format where it's playable. I mean, it's it's so frequently uh, abused in EDH, and I, usually this is good enough for Cube, too. It just steals your opponent's creature for free, so it's um, it's a very powerful card. We're highly unlikely to ever see anything similar, uh, and I, I do agree that $20 is probably probably skimming the you know the low price for what this is going to be in the in the near future in general i think a lot of these reserve list cards that are strong in edh and sort of more casual cube circles are um you know even even if they're in the double digit price wise they could end up quite a bit more expensive in another year or so as as the supply finally gets drained on all of these and people deal with the fact that you know just if you want a reserve list card for your edh deck you're probably looking at you know starting at 30 to 40 dollars well, yeah, and a lot of these reserve list cards are posting up kind of uh, a, a new tier of um, uh, aspirational targets um, for players in EDH and Cube. Um, you know, they're, they're turning into the kind of thing that, um, you know, you had available to you at $12 forever, and now it's, you know, $30, $40, $50, $60, and, you know, it's going to be the thing you pick up when you get your paycheck on Friday um, and feel good about it that you get to add this yeah. thing that not everybody has. And, you know, the next time you play with your play group, they're going to be like, oh, you got one. That's really cool. Um, and once a card turns the corner like that, then the sky's the limit, especially if it's reserve list. Yeah, it, yeah, it really is. And this is just, this isn't like a mediocre, eh, whatever. It's only good because it's reserved. This is a genuinely good guard. I mean, all you got to do is look at the the price uh, curve of something like Juzum Jin over the last five years um, yeah. and, and see how Apple-like uh, that ascent has been. So uh, give me your first pick of the week. Sure. So this is a card that... Uh, we talked about a little bit in segment one that James almost ruined the surprise on is a cathartic <laughs> reunion. Um, this is the comment from Kaladesh that is the, uh, the more powerful tormenting voice. It's two mana um, discard two cards and then draw three cards um, up from tormenting voices, discard one, draw two. Uh, this is a huge blowout if it gets countered, but if it doesn't, um, it does so much work in not only in any deck, just in a normal deck. This offers some pretty serious card filtering with a, you know, at, at neutrality. Um, but the dredge capacity here is outrageous. Uh, you know, in modern, you can go land Simeon Spirit Guide, Cathartic Reunion, discarding like a one Golgari Grave Troll. And then on the first draw, dredge the Grave Troll, which flips another troll. And then on the second draw, I'll do it. And then on the third draw, I'll do it. And now you've dredged 18 cards on turn one. Uh, and I mean, that requires a Simeon Spirit Guide, but you can still do that on turn two very easily, um, especially if you have a Neonate on turn one to kind of start the process. So just the the sheer speed at which this churns through your deck is unreal. And I highly expect that we're going to see this in every dredge styled deck in modern. And I would not be surprised to see this break into legacy um, as well. So 
if you look at Blood Craze Neonate, that one drop vampire from uh, I think Shadows Over Innistrad, it's like, you know, it's it's two cents for the normal version. Uh, but foils are like five or six bucks. And those are only going to go up because people realize how much of an enabler it is in Dredge. And I see Cathartic Reunion being in the same space. Um, is that the non-foils are going to be nothing, but the foils will be a surprising number of dollars, like Neonate, like Gurmog Angler, and some of these other cards in the past. So, you know, I don't think there are any pre-orders on foils yet, uh, but if they come out at a dollar or less, I would be all over those. Because I think that this could easily be four or five bucks. Yeah, I think it's a great pick. Um, we're talking about insolent neonate um, is the reference point. Uh, I think what did I say? Blood crazed. Um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, you're you're absolutely right. The insolent neonate was uh, was also flagged as a dredge card, and yet people were still leaving foils of it uh, in their draft regs at the end of the drafting table. So you know, keep keep an eye out for these in in trades at your pre-releases and um, you know as throw-ins. Um, before everybody catches on that this is a that this card is a, a valuable piece of the puzzle for dredge decks potentially in modern end or legacy mm-hmm. what's your uh, next card james yeah so my next one is uh, i you know i've been looking over this uh masterpiece list um really the only thing uh magic uh finance related stuff i was doing um while i was on my surf trip was trying to figure out um you know which of these masterpieces might be uh mispriced um, Star City Games has led the market in establishing pricing for these. I have to imagine that they looked pretty carefully at, um, you know, sales patterns for the cards and the other versions of these cards involved um, and looked at their prevalence in Q, BDH, Modern, Legacy, etc. and tried to figure out, um, you know, where the demand was coming from. And for the most part, I think everybody agrees that they're kind of starting price points, especially given that they are, you know, known to be the the on the high side of retail um, make make sense, um, but there are definitely a few things that uh, had me scratching my head. One of them is that I think other vile uh, masterpieces may be underpriced uh, for the long term. I think that their posted price on other vile was one twenty, um, and uh, they're sold out at that price. Um, as the as with the expeditions, I would expect that at peak supply, about you know four to six weeks out from the release of Kaladesh, so let's say early to mid November, you're going to get um, a shot at these somewhere in the I'm hoping eighty to hundred dollar range. Um, people are going to be unloading this kind of thing on Puka Trade. We saw a lot of that with the expeditions um, at when they first came out. the The average player that lucks into one of these in a draft um, doesn't need it for anything and wants something else that they've had their eye on and they want to capitalize on that value because they're everybody's telling them that it's going to go down it's going to go down you got to get out um and so you should be able to get a a shot at the other vials which i'm assuming are going to be gorgeous the art looks fantastic um and if you can get them under 100 i think it's a future 150 dollar card i'd be looking to um you know get a 50 to 75 percent gain on these over say two to three years um as supply dries up um one of the things that's been proposed as people have been talking about masterpieces is that the the value of all masterpieces will um, trend lower over time as more of them are printed. Um, I'm not sure I agree with that. I, I don't think the same money chases a foil scalding turn as chases a foil ether vial necessarily. Um, and I don't think, and I think that most of the money does the chase does does that chasing at different times. So, you know, we were chasing expeditions last fall, this fall we're chasing masterpieces, and that's totally different money. Um, if, if 
five sets came out at the same time and they all had um, masterpieces. So there was like 250 masterpieces released on the market all at once, basically a full set's worth, then it would be a completely different conversation. But as long as they're spaced out, you know, a set at a time for a while, um, you know, I, I think that they are, the, the really good ones are likely to uh, ascend over time. I mean, a lot of the the good expeditions are down to 30 or 40 copies on TCG and most of the relevant ones have seen upward price movement um, since they're, they bottomed out uh, before Christmas last year. And I suspect we're going to see similar things with the masterpieces. Yeah, there's, uh, I mean, there's a lot to discuss here and this is supposed to be kind of part of our, our, our last segment for the week. So I will keep this um, restrained to this specific card. I do think Aether Vials under $100 are probably a pretty strong target. I think there are a couple others that could easily end up mispriced. Um, but in general, I would be staying away from Masterpieces on the whole right now, unless you are extremely confident in one of your choices. Uh, you know, if you look at the Zendikar expeditions, they um, bottomed out about 30 to 45 days after release. Um, so, well, there might be one or two outliers in Kaladesh inventions that will react quicker than that. In general, I think that's going to be a good rule of thumb to follow uh, for the time being um, to kind of look in that time period. But, um, but other than that, definitely uh, one of the stronger masterpieces, I think, to keep your eyes on um, as possibly exploding. Uh, you know, who knows what that's going to look like in three years. Yeah, it's just the, the fact that it's played in both Merfolk and Death and Taxes in Modern and Legacy and, and the uh, utility uh, inherent in Aether Vile for fast-moving tribal decks means that any future um, aggro tribal deck could make uh, good use of Aether Vile as a new archetype in modern. And if we went from you know three major archetypes using it to two major, I mean from two to three major archetypes using it, then um, that might be enough to push it over the top. Yep. Um, so I only had the one cathartic reunion this week. Uh, wasn't exactly sure where else to go, um, but it looks, you know, we, we can essentially, your third pick is essentially one we are both in on. And the only reason I don't talk about this every week is because people don't want to listen to me about it every week, but go ahead and tell us what it is. <laughs> yeah. So we're both in agreement that uh, some of the key Eldrazi from Oath of the Gatewatch are still uh, underpriced. Uh, and even with some of the upward momentum that the foils have seen, um, some of those are still probably uh, underpriced. I was picking up Thought Not Seer foils in the 10 to $15 range. It's now sitting around 20 um, and I suspect that it's going to trend upwards towards 30 over the next year or two. Um, could be sooner. Um, the card, people are just finally coming to terms with the fact that um, Eldrazi is not dead and modern. It's, it's that simple. Um, Eye of Ugin was not enough to kill the deck. Bant Eldrazi is at least tier 1.5 um, and is a contender at any given tournament. Um, and most of the cards... Uh, under consideration, things like uh, Displacer, Thought Not Seer, Reality Smasher, etc., are often four ofs. And when they're four ofs, and they're uh, you know also a big deck in Legacy, where Eldrazi is very very powerful, um, uh, you know there the stage is set for these to show gains and foil over time. So don't be shy about getting in now while the getting is good. Yeah, just all Eldrazi all the time, all foil, all non foil, anything anywhere, just. If you can make, if it takes two mana from Eldrazi Temple, you're in. <laughs> uh, all right. So a quick uh, browse through the decks from the Bazaar of Moxon uh, Legacy Tournament uh, this past weekend. Um, you, you, you've got some interesting research here that definitely has my attention, Travis. 
Yeah, this is uh, this is a legacy deck that popped up recently. Or um, the the legacy bizarre Moxon from this past weekend, and the, you know it. We see Eldrazi in the top eight. It was won by Miracles, which is no surprise to anybody. Um, there's Eldrazi in the top eight, which is interesting, uh, you know, just from that whole should I buy these Eldrazi cards perspective. The one that made me do a double take was uh, a bug opposition deck. Oh, opposition. yeah. That enchantment. Uh, <laughs> I'll give you a second to go look that up. Um, but it was a, a reasonably straightforward bug deck, um, but it's running four Green Sun Zenith. Uh, I, I don't think bug usually runs that three Garrick wild speaker and three of its namesake opposition. I, I just, I, I don't get it. I don't know what to say about this. The, the ball, so the ball, odd. the balls on this guy showing up to a legacy tournament with this thing. And then, you know, over running over a bunch of players. I mean, there was only 195 players in this tournament. Um, so I'm not sure this is a major metagame shift, but uh, I love this deck. I mean, if you've ever played against opposition, it is and and been at the other end of it locking you out of the game. Um, it is one of the premium feel bads available to you as a Magic player <laughs> to just see all of your permanents tapped at the start of your turn every turn as the player just rolls through their value engine and unloads a bunch of value onto the board. And then in in this deck, looks like they're they're looking to basically overrun you either with Garrick Wildspeaker or Crater Hoof Behemoth. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's just it's just so so amusing that this would be good enough to get there. But I guess just tapping down your opponent's field every upkeep, uh, including their lands, was was enough to get them into the top eight. You know, I mean, you look at the at the at the rest of the top eight here, and you're like, boy, opposition would crush a lot of these strategies. You know, it just that uh, nice, nice, nice thought. Not seer, it's tapped. Nice, nice. <laughs> you know, Eldrazi Temple tap. Nice, anything. Uh, Aether Vial. Well, I guess it doesn't not that good against Aether Vial, but in general, it just does a lot of work against a lot of people. Yeah, and I mean, Reality Sp- Smasher only cares if it's targeted by a spell. Uh, abilities don't trigger the the card disadvantage. So, um, opposition is a very nice answer to that card. Um, I also like the cute little uh, synergies between Wirewood Symbiote, which is a uh, one-mana insect that allows you to return an elf you control to its owner's hand, and as a consequence of that action, untap target creature. So (laughs) you get to bounce Coiling Oracles, which is a 1-1 Snake Elf Druid, um, one of the most uh, abused uh, combinations of tribal um keywords ever in magic i think that card uh green and a blue for a one one when it enters the battlefield you reveal the top card of your library if it's a land card you put it on the battlefield otherwise you put it into your hand so you got a draw engine there um they can also bounce elvis four copies of elvish visionary for similar effect and they can save their death right shaman if they want to which is also an elf um I, for a second there i thought shardless agent was an elf and i was going to say that was busted um but that's a human <laughs> rogue it's certainly something uh, overall, I think one um, the two more noticeable points as far as we're concerned. Well, I guess there's there's three decks I think with uh, that are just worth poking our heads into um, the miracles again with more monastery mentors. You know this is not news to anybody, but monastery mentors are very powerful. It hasn't. It's really it's made a splash in both legacy and vintage. Um, I mean it's a mainstay in miracles now. It hasn't really shown up in modern yet to this point, uh, but I don't think that that is permanent. I think eventually monastery mentor will shove his way into modern. Um, I would not be surprised to see that show up in Nahiri shells uh, a little more regularly in the in the coming future. 
So this reanimator deck that plays second also has very spicy cards in it. Two Sire of Insanity, um, yep. two of your uh, pet insolent neonate, um, four Grizzlebrand, four Chancellor of the Annex. Um, this is four triple white for a five six. You, you may reveal this card from your opening hand. If you do, when each opponent casts his or her first spell of the game, counter that spell unless that player pays one. So you get a free four spike, basically. Uh, it's a five six flyer, and whenever an opponent casts a spell, you counter it unless that player p- plays one. So I'm assuming this is anti storm uh, tech. Um, but it's interesting because it also showed up uh, in the Dredge deck. Um, as a four of again so both dredge and reanimator running chancellor of the annex as four of's main deck um, that's certainly interesting um in the reanimator deck you also had two copies of collective brutality um i'm loving the fact that i picked up those foils early um definitely one of my better picks lately that card looks like it's going to be a steamroller in multiple formats wait the which card i didn't i didn't catch that collective brutality that's the- oh the collective brutality yeah yeah that was the other card i was going to mention in the that strategy mm-hmm um, so yeah, that that reanimator deck is very spicy. I don't think I've ever seen anything like it. No, the the collective brutality I think is is what's worth noting there. Um, and finally, over in the death and taxes list, we saw both we saw three recruiter of the guard and two sanctum prelate, both uh, the new conspiracy cards. So those did not waste any time making a splash on uh, on legacy and in a pretty big way too. Uh, so if there was any doubt whether they were good enough, there you go. I mean, five copies in this third place deck so um clearly those prices that people thought were inflated are going to have a little bit more legs than we may have expected and recruiter of the guard foils are sitting at about 60 dollars uh stretching up into the 80 or 90 range on tcg and there really are not that many around i mean one of the things that i think is worth noting about um product fatigue this concept that wizards is releasing products faster than the player base can digest them um leading to potentially higher sales overall but potentially lower sales per product um the the result of us getting into kaladesh so quickly after we got conspiracy 2 i mean i feel like that set had no time to breathe whatsoever um and i think that the end result of that is that the key cards from that set are going to be um uh in much lower supply um they're just I'm not sure Conspiracy 2 even had a chance to unfurl um, its fullest sense of uh, peak supply because, um, sure, a lot of it was open in the first couple of weeks, but now it's just dead. I can't imagine anybody's opening you know, packs or boxes of Conspiracy 2 this week leading into this much hype around Kaladesh. Yeah, and with how rare foil mythics are, well, I guess Sanctum Prelates, the mythic there, Recruiter is rare. Uh, but yeah, in general, you're correct. There's There's... Really was no time for a conspiracy to be conspiracy. You know, we you drafted it for two or three weeks and suddenly there was nothing but Kaladesh spoilers that were really dra- drawing your attention away from from conspiracy. Uh, you know, that was like the pre-release weekend was probably in 95 percent of the product. Um, the real question, I guess, will be, you know, how available that product you know, the product will be available while it's on the printers, which will be for quite a while. Um, but if nobody's opening it. You know, for the next six months to a year, well, it, they can still print it, um, and then you know, once that happens, that's it. You know, it's it's that was the set. So if nobody buys much of it now, you'll really see some price increases after that first year ish or so, whenever they take it off the printer. Yeah, and I mean, you know, obviously, Death and Taxes always runs for Ethervile um, card I mentioned earlier, and the Sanctum Prelate um, uh, Mythic Foils. There are 
only 15 or 20 available on TCG Player, and they stretch from $73 up to over $100. Um, you know, I'm going to add that to my pick list. I think I think the the foils of this card anywhere under 80 are probably going to net you 30 or 40 dollars a copy down the road. Um, I just, I just don't buy that anybody's going to be opening uh, Conspiracy Two for much of the rest of the year. Uh, a lot of that's going to happen at at kind of generalized retail like Walmart and Target, where it's sitting on the shelves, and that certainly hurts the prospects of these cards. But it also, I think one of the, the key factors with sets that are um, widely available at retail is kind of like mom picked me up a pack in, in the lineup at Target is that, um, you know, a lot of that suffers from attrition. Um, those cards get opened, fooled around with at the kitchen table, lost, damaged, um, packed away under the bed, uh, and they don't show up on TCG Player um, where they drive the price. Um I, I just don't buy that competitive magic players are going to be putting much more money into conspiracy uh, too. And, and these cards are already looking in to be in very low supply for a set that just came out. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, those $70 foils are uh, a tough sell on their face, but um, you know, you could pay 70 bucks to pick up some foils and then maybe they're just a hundred, you know, that's not really that big of a, of a change on these. Uh, but when you consider the, just how few of them there will be out there, uh, you know, especially after six months or a year, um, you know, it could be 30 or 40 bucks a copy pretty easily. So certainly worth considering at least. Yeah. And the, and the fact that it's top fouring a, a, a significant legacy event that quickly after release shows that the, the death and taxes players tested and liked what they what they found when they tested. Um, so, uh, you know, it's not a four of. Um, but if it's a two or a three of, uh, I'm still on board for foils. Yeah. And, you know, that's a card that you'll still see in other formats, too, I think. Or, well, I guess you can't see it in modern, but you'll see it in uh, in EDH, I think, is not terribly uh, difficult to imagine. Um, I think it would be reasonably popular in some casual circles. I think you'd see it possibly in cube decks. So, um, you know, there's definitely enough of a demand to keep people interested in this card. All right, so uh, moving on to our topic of the week, um, we want to dive in a little deeper on the Kaladesh spoilers, specifically related to the Masterpiece series and um, the purported, quote-unquote, death of MTG Finance that several of our uh, peers and pundits in the industry have been uh, discussing in their own reviews and, and uh, analysis of the, of the release of this series. Um, so give me your, your hot take on the masterpiece series, Travis, how do you feel about it overall? Uh, whew, all right. Well, in general, I think it's a, it's a great strategy for what wizards is trying to do. They want to lower the barrier, the, the barrier to entry in standard. They want, you know, players to be able to play standard easier. Um, they want to be able to get more reprints out there to serve the enfranchised player like, uh, you know, James or I, or your, your true, grinder who wants some cool looking cards um, and this does both of those pretty well uh, and it also makes people excited to open packs right like there's this huge lottery ticket you could open and given how magic at christmas land people tend to be and um you know how much of a gambler so many magic players tend to be there's uh, a real je ne sais quoi in opening a pack that could have a 200 hundred dollar card in it 
Um, you know, even if the EV is roughly the same or even worse than it used to be, the fact that that opportunity is there is really exciting. That'll get some people going. Um, so I think it, it probably does a pretty reasonable job of satisfying their goals. Um, you know, we know that the price of a box is relatively restrained while it's in print. So now that you're shoving all this extra EV into the packs through this Masterpiece series set after set, in general, I believe we're going to see standard singles uh, a good bit lower. I'm going to ballpark between like maybe 10 and 30% cheaper on standard singles. I'm not exactly sure. Um, you know, I don't have the EV calculations in front of me, but, you know, probably somewhere in that neighborhood, uh, which should do well to help more players move into standard and help players be a little more fluid in standard. Maybe now you'll be more inclined to pick up more than one deck instead of latching onto one for the season. Uh, but I'm sure Wizards has a lot more insight into that, uh, the marketplace and how those numbers are going to play out than I really do. Um, and I, I know you had some interesting thoughts about this. We were talking briefly before the cast. So why don't you enlighten our listeners on your on your perspective here? Sure. So, yeah, I mean, I agree with most of what you said. I mean, it's it's fascinating uh, to, you know, understand um, the that clearly the sales patterns for Battle for Zendikar um, reflected uh, success in in include the inclusion of the expeditions in that set. If that wasn't the case, then Wizards would not be uh, pursuing this. And it's interesting that uh, if you think about the um, Innistrad block um, from earlier this year, uh, obviously that was the litmus test where they were um, uh, setting up a block that used expeditions and a block that did not. And then they had data on kind of how both situations drove sales and they had already probably at that point committed to what they were doing with Kaladesh. Um, but ha one has to imagine, um, that they, they, they liked what they saw that the, the results are that expeditions sell more packs. Um, and so I think it's important for everybody to understand that, um, if we look at the math and I think, you know, Chaz Andre at, uh, uh Star City Games did some solid, uh, math. It's been echoed in some other places, um, about what it actually means for the expected value of a booster pack. It, um, and, and generally what it means is that, um, if the EV of a booster pack is at about $2 or something, uh, normally, um, the masterpiece series at say $75 average for each of the 30 cards, um, that are potentially uh, available to be opened would uh, extract 50 cents or um, you know 25 percent of the EV um, out of the booster packs. So it what that generally means is that your rares are going to be uh, 50 cents cheaper on average um, and your mythics a little more so um, and that, in exchange for the average booster being open, being uh, worth a little less, somebody's going to get a lottery scratch ticket where they get a $50, $100, $200 card. And, and that's the trade off that we're all making as players is um, that the standard cards that we purchase or open or draft um, or get in a sealed pool are worth a little less on average. Um, but, you know, somebody else gets just has this potential for um high level variants where they get a big win. And I think what they're, you know, they're doing here is brilliant from a marketing perspective. You know, as an agency guy, I can really see the the value here of um, you know, leveraging people's propensity to forget their failures and um over focus on their successes. So, you know, you're 
when you when you didn't open an expedition, you were just, you know, playing magic as per usual. But when you did open an exposition, it really gave you a huge feel good moment that becomes uh, an emotional anchor and recommits you to the brand overall. Um, and so, I mean, there's there's clearly value for wizards in, in that scenario. But I think people need to be very careful about saying that this is better for the player base overall. Um, quite clearly, that's not the case. Um and, and here's why. So yes, it's true that the standard staples are likely to be less expensive. Um, yes, it's going to be difficult for Chandra to hold $60 as uh, a chase four of mythic um, in, in a world where there are masterpiece series artifacts running around. But if it's true that um, the standard cards are going to be less expensive, um, it must also be true that that uh, reduction in expense is driven by more packs and boxes being opened overall. And we're not talking about the packs and boxes being opened by the LGS. We're talking about the packs and boxes being opened by us, the player base, which means that um, the, the extraction or shift in value um, that comes from the Master uh, P series is, is largely going to pay, be paid for by us. So yes, your $800 standard deck might be a six or $700 standard deck. Um, and that makes it slightly easier to get into standard. Um, but the counter, uh, weight to that is that, um, you're going to buy more product. Um, people that were only going to buy a box are going to buy two boxes. The guys who are going to buy two boxes might buy three or a case, um, because the numbers on the numbers for the the master P series are very specific. You basically have to open four boxes to have a clear shot at one, um, and that's significantly above the number of boxes that the average player in an LGS is willing to open. Um, but based on what happened with expeditions, um, Wizards was clearly encouraged, and so they are clearly expecting us to buy more product. If we don't buy more product, then the effect on standard card prices will not take place, and so. Um, you know, the old adage still applies. We were talking about this earlier. Um, the best move you can make if you want to take advantage of this lowered cost of standard is to just not buy boxes. Um, you have to elect to not participate in the lottery process if you really want to get the full benefit. If you don't do that, then the the fact that your standard deck costs you less to purchase at LGS is a red herring because um, if you bought a case to set that up, you know, you're still down a few hundred dollars more than you would have been otherwise, and magic is overall more expensive for you, not less. And if we take go to the ten thousand foot view, obviously this is what Wizards is driving at has been driving at all along over the last couple of years. I mean, the first big move was um, making all four sets of the year really relevant for standard, um, going to two uh, two set blocks instead of uh, one three set block plus the summer set, which was of was was often irrelevant, um, and so. You know, that already, and then the tightening of the standard rotation schedule from 24 months to 18 months, that was also aimed at us buying more product uh, more regularly. And this whole thing with the expeditions and with the the Masterpiece series and the fact that they have basically said that for the foreseeable future, we're going to be getting expedition-style promos and sets means that they want us to buy more product. So magic is not getting cheaper. Magic is getting more expensive. Wizards is setting up a situation where the average magic player spends more on magic. And the fact that everybody thinks that's a net win for the players is just hilarious to me. Well, they're clearly, we're clearly going to see uh, 
benefits for a very specific person. That is a person who knows better than to buy sealed product, who wants to play standard for as cheap as possible, and knows that the best way to do that is to acquire their singles for their standard deck uh, directly. So either hopping online and buying play sets here and there or trading for them at their local store. You know, that's the player who's really benefiting from this, I think. Um, you know, the guy who likes to buy packs at Walmart when he goes through shopping or, uh, you know, has has to buy a fat pack or two with every set that comes out. Um, they're definitely going to be squeezed in, in trying to get them to buy more boxes. And they're also trying to wring more value out of a lot of players who didn't put any money in the standard sets. You and I spend very little money on new cards in general. Um, you know, I can count. I'm sure I've spent under $100 over the last year and a half on new cards. Um, and if you kind of take out speculative purchases, it drops significantly more than that. Whereas now I'm looking at this and going, huh, I have to find $900 so I can pick up some of these expeditions. So I think I think their model is such that there's a very specific player who benefits from this um, in terms of their magic expenses being cheaper. And where Wizards is getting paid is that now they have more players who can move in, ideally more players who can move in the standard because it's a little cheaper and the staples are a little lower. But they also get to try and drag money out of my pocket with a standard release that they were never getting before. So even though they're losing a little bit on standard decks, I'm now spending more money on magic and I wasn't buying any cards before. Um, so that, that to me seems like a really good way to monetize a market that you've had they've had trouble reaching in the past yeah i mean you made the argument to me earlier um off cast where we you were you were saying that it's possible that um a lowered price of standard brings in a whole new segment of standard players the problem with that is that um you know thinking about the two major lgs's here in toronto 401 games and face-to-face games that i frequent on a regular basis um, both of which can pack the house with 50 to 100 bodies like five or six nights a week um you know, I, I can't picture the person that I know um, at those places that that needs their deck to go from 800 to 600 in standard to justify playing standard. Um, it, it's just not enough of a difference. If, if you could bring standard decks from, say, $800 down to $200, now you open up the possibility of a lot more, you know, guys in high school funding a deck. But most of the people I know that are price sensitive, um, you know, at Friday Night Magic just play ultra budget decks no matter what. They just accept that they're going to lose a, a higher percentage of matches and they play whatever rando brew that they can afford. Um, I don't think that the, the guy that can only afford a $100 deck but still wants to play, um, changes, that, this, that this shift changes anything for that guy. Um, I just don't buy it. I, I don't think that the guy who truly cannot afford to be playing the expensive versions of this game, the competitive versions of Magic, um, does much different. I think that guy still brings a brew to the format, and if he can get a few of those cards a little cheaper, great for him. But it's not going to change much about his commitment to showing up at Friday Night Magic. And I think it's very similar to what we saw in terms of the reprints for Modern Masters. I, I'm not convinced that that really made Modern much more accessible. Um, because, I, you know, a Modern deck would get a couple of pieces reprinted that were key um, you know, other vial for, for affinity or whatever. And the price on those would come down 20 or $30. And so if you were getting into that deck fresh, you could save a hundred bucks for a period of, you know, three to six to nine months or whatever, until the card respiked again, you know, now we're seeing noble hierarch, um, in a new period of ascendancy, despite being reprinted. Um, and I think that's the kind of thing we're going to keep seeing despite all the reprintings. The reality is that the, the card pool is pretty deep for reprintings. 
um, between all the different formats that they need to support. And um, I, I'm just not convinced that uh, very many players are going to change their behavior on site at the FNM. What I do believe is that those players are going to change their behavior in terms of how much they put on their credit card when they get overexcited about masterpieces and start chasing them. Well, part of this might be that you and I uh, are not are not necessarily able to accurately predict the purchasing power of the more casual FNM hybrid player. You know, that as a player, neither of us have been in a very long time. Um, so I think I think we're we're grasping a little bit at the the psychology of those guys, but you know I I don't think at, at the, so having said that I'm not expecting these types of people to go oh well I'm thinking about building T merge uh, but it's two hundred and fifty dollars uh, which is fifty dollars more than I want to spend on a standard deck so I'm not going to bother. What I do think you might see is them looking at that list and going wow most of this I have or is cheap. But, oh, there's this, these four mythics that I don't own, these four Kozilek's returns. And now instead of being eight bucks a piece, they're six fifty. Um, and, you know, you might just see like you really just need a couple individual cards, the most expensive cards in the deck. I think you just need to see those shave a little bit. And, you know, that kind of psychology of the, you know, six ninety nine versus seven dollars. Um, more people buy at six ninety nine. Uh, you know, you need that psychology to start working in your favor where they don't have to see the whole the deck look cheaper. They just need to see a couple key cards look cheaper. And now they're now they're a little more interested. You're going to catch them a little bit easier because that's the one card they're worried about. They're not worried about all the other dollars. Um, and that's what this is going to do, do is it really pulls down the value on some of those upper level mythics and rares uh, better than anything else. It'll it'll squeeze those as we've seen with Battle for Zendikar and like Gideon and Ulamog. So um, it, it, it's 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 tough to know exactly how these player how those types of players are going to react to this type of information, but I can definitely see the way they approach deciding whether it's worth spending money on these decks uh, to be a little less analytical um, than you and I, you know, are inclined to be. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's certainly true that you know uh, it's been a while since I was a sixteen year old Magic player that couldn't couldn't afford the deck I wanted, um, but. You know, we do a lot of price theory stuff um, at our agency at Advoca. Um, and one of the things that, uh, you know, we've made use of many times over the years is that the the perception of price points between 599 and 999 um, is very fluid. So, you know, if you price something at 599 you may as well price it at 699 or 799 because in many cases you can get away with it. If you look at the pricing for iPhones, um, high-end uh, cell phones in particular, um, the the price uh, ranges um, between 500 and 1,000 are usually hinged to very kind of silly things like how much memory they provide, um, like hard drive uh, space or, or what have you, and not any kind of major uh, feature that actually costs the company much money. Um, but and they're able to do that because people have very a very hard time interpreting the difference between 599 and 799. And I think that standard decks are are in that same uh, range of price points and are equally um, unlikely to change much in behavior or psychology. I mean, we're never going to get access to the stats to prove this one way or the other. But I would be very surprised if we did get access um, to see much in the way of a shift. I, I think what is much more likely to occur is what Wizards wants to occur, which is that the average revenue per unit, um, you know, the price that uh, 
players play to be involved in the Magic brand on an annual basis spikes by 10 or 15% based on the presence of uh, the Masterpiece series in sets. And I think that they're going to um, milk that concept until the stats say otherwise. So I suspect we're going to get it for a minimum of a year and a half to two years. And at that point, I think they're going to take a break. I wouldn't expect the Expedition-style releases to last forever. Um, I think that they know that going to that well, you know, we've already gone to the biggest pile of lands. Now we're going to the biggest pile of artifacts. Um, We're probably going to see a whole bunch of creatures and maybe um, gods um, in the Egypt block. Um, And then, you know, after that, they start to, you know, it really starts to get kind of tough. You're going to tackle enchantments, instants and sorceries. That really only gives you maybe, you know, given that we're dealing with two two set blocks per year, um, you only get two or three years of that before you kind of have to take a big step back and give it some breathing space. That's entirely possible. And I was kind of wondering about that, you know, how many of these you could do before you really start to retread some of the same ground. You know, you could see a card like Crucible of Worlds show up in the artifact block, and then they could also do a second printing of it in, um, I don't know, another land set uh, or something, or graveyard set or something like that. So, you know, you can you can double back over the same cards a couple times, but I agree, I, it would be difficult to see the Master Series running for more than more than five years Um you know, they'll, they'll do it for a couple of years and take a break for a little while and then come back and so forth. I mean, it's, um, it, it's really- I, I think it's funny that so much of this all kind of comes back around to the idea, the very simple idea that Wizards recognizes that uh, people really like to gamble and they're going to prey on that facet of humanity, which is a little, little dark predatory predatory for yeah for just like a trading card game you know they're they're basically selling you really expensive lottery tickets and it is only getting more and more obvious that that's what's going on and this is really like really developing probably some bad habits in young people (laughs) yeah i mean i've lost i when i got my black lotus at uh, gp new jersey uh, a year and a half ago the uh, chinese gentleman that sold it to me um, was telling me stories about how at LGSs in China, one of the reasons that Chinese cards are so cheap is that um, on Friday nights there, guys will show up, they both buy a booster box, then they basically pack battle um, based on the, the rarity of their mythic or rare um, to see who wins all the cards. And um, they blow through packs much, much faster in those LGSs. Um, so Magic has always had uh, a dimension of uh, the lottery ticket um, mechanics, and this is just extending that to a to a new level. But I, I just think it's hilarious that people think that this is some kind of big um, altruistic movement on on behalf of wizards. When, I, from my perspective, it's anything but that. This is, as you said, predatory. Um, it 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 preys on uh, you know the human frailties involved in evaluating wins versus losses and the emotional benefit um, to the brand of you know letting people have a big win every once in a while. Um, you know, it's interesting how that kind of cascades. Like if you're at a drafting table and some guy opens a, a masterpiece, there's going to be some spillover to the other people at the table. It was a big, exciting moment, even though you didn't get to go home with it. Um, you know, you saw one opened and everybody passed it around and it was super shiny and sexy. Um, and by the way, let me interject with just a, a side note here. I haven't actually held one of these in hand and Trick Jarrett posted a video that made it kind of hard to see um, just how good these are going to look 
uh, when they're in hand. The big question here is, are these going to be a better foiling process than FTV? Because if they are pretty close to FTV, people hate that foiling process. And um, if it's any different or worse, um, once everybody's actually cracked some um, than the expeditions were, or if the chipping is still a problem, then all of that could factor into the prices on these cards. We did see Trick Jarrett post, uh, a, I'm going to call it low quality, video of, uh, it might have even been an animated GIF. Yeah, of, it was a GIF. Um, the, yeah, the foil process. And it definitely looked more metallic than pack foils tend to be. Um, will it, you know, will it have that same character of the FTV foils? They said it's different, but I have to tell you that my initial glimpse of it right in that little image was not uh, I was not comforted by that. That looked a little more metallic than I want it to be. It looked more like a glossy coat over the card rather than the, than the art itself being foil, if that makes sense. Um, but I, I agree, you know, the expeditions definitely suffered, uh, financially, uh, because of how they ended up looking when they're in people's hands. Uh, and it would be a real shame to see the Kaladish inventions kind of go that route as well. Uh, it's always unfortunate when really cool cards with, with extremely, you know, you know print runs or, or what have you, you don't get very many chances at this type of thing and when it doesn't come out well it's really unfortunate um, because you're not going to see another set of kaladesh inventions possibly ever and if they mess up the foiling this time that'll suck yeah so i've got the let, let's say that that expeditions is a win forever and it just it all the numbers tell them that they should just keep doing it and it becomes a normal thing um the my money is on that you have to have at least a five-year gap before you can retread common ground. So what I mean by that is that if, you know, in fall of 2015, we got Battle for Zendikar and the land-based expeditions, I think they have to wait five years to give you those again. One of the problem, problems is that it really kind of interferes with the reprint schedule and other supplemental products. Um, pretty hard to give you, give everybody, for instance, the other five fetch lands in, in Modern Masters um, 2017, if you're also releasing a, a masterpiece um, set within the same year that's going to feature the same cards. I mean, it's already really weird that we're getting Mana Crypt foils in two different art styles twice in the same summer, right? Yeah, yeah given how infrequently we've seen them before that. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's <laughs> certainly, uh, you know, already shows signs that... Um, uh, that the planning process and the coordination between the teams internally is not perfect. Um, but I suspect that they, they have to leave those five-year gaps. And because of that, I think that those cards are going to get the chance they need to mature. Um, and this, this also kind of spins off into the next part of this topic. So maybe I'll, I'll save it for there. Um, the, one of the common themes I've been hearing bandied about the, the internet, um, not interwebs. Thanks, Cliff. Um, <laughs> Has uh, been, to be fair, I was the one that picked on you about it first, and Cliff just chimed in. All right. Well, both of you then. The, <laughs> um, is that the expedition-style cards are, in some way, the death of MTG Finance. This was a, a term that, was, uh, that I noted most uh, prevalently in a discussion that was had by the um, MTG Goldfish crew um, on their most recent podcast. And I, I was just kind of chuckling and shaking my head. Um, there's kind of two dimensions to why I think that that's just wildly inaccurate. The the first is that um, I think first you to say that it's the death of MTG finance, you first have to define what MTG finance is. And I think that any reasonable definition of MTG finance includes a, a, a variety of different ways of making money 
um, or saving money around this game, um, none of which has been the kind of dominant approach by the majority of players for any length of time. Um, and to extrapolate on that, what I mean is that um, there are, uh, if you look at the people we know in the kind of MTG finance community, and maybe there are like 15 or 20 relevant warm bodies that we all track um, and, and, and cannibalize ideas from, um, you know, some of these guys ha- are basically vendors. They run small LGSs and sell in LGSs, and their whole scene is buy low, sell high with the retail margin of 30 to 40%. Um, uh, and some of these guys are bulk guys who are picking up collections that they find on Craigslist where they happen to exist in uh, markets where they can do that consistently um, at good margin. And then they fill orders for other people like DJ over at QS. Um, there are people that are, you know, backpack grinders that are going to tournament after tournament, just kind of trying to trade up into better and better stuff, uh, trade for value, which is kind of a dying art form. And in the age of TCG and Star City Games, you know, synchronized pricing. Um, and then there's, you know, guys like us that are more prone to the speculation on cards where you buy and hold for a period of time. And I have to assume that when you know Goldfish was referring to the death of MTG Finance, that they were referring to the 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 buyout style um, of individual card speculation, where you pick up a bunch of copies of something, try to remove them from the market, and then to a lesser extent, uh, you know, the guys like us that are are more about you know identifying key targets, um, picking up you know anywhere from one to ten playsets of something and stashing them away until they have time to mature. Um, and I don't really see how the expeditions affects any of that, to be honest. Um, you know, we, we were talking off cast about how, uh, you know, what the EV drain is. And let's say that, it, you know, you said somewhere between 10 and 30 percent. Chaz said 20 to 25 percent. I suspect 20 percent is a good number to be using um, in this kind of discussion. So let's say that it makes the average rare or mythic 20 percent less expensive um, in, in a set where you have expeditions um, draining that uh, expected value out of any given booster pack or box. Um, that's not enough of a shift to shut down um, MTG Finance. And I mean, even in in the, the Zendikar block, there were plenty of opportunities to make money on both foils and non-foils that were related to standard, that were related to modern, that were related to legacy. Um, you know, the Eldrazi um, had two separate sets of spikes, one when the deck was destroying everybody in modern, and then again, more, more recently, um, there are uh, cards like Gideon and Drana. You know, Drana is a, a drastic underperformer, but I made money on her twice um, uh, when the hype train drove speculation about what the card was going to do in the second set of the Innistrad block. And so I, I buy that there will be less opportunities. You know, that was kind of that was your key point, right? That, the, you know, there, there will be less cards in standard where we can make money, right? Yeah, essentially, I think it's essentially turning into smaller ball. Um, you know, the if you assume that, let's say, one copy of every standard card, you know, and that's legal exists and that has some dollar value, let's call it, I don't know, $250, whatever. Uh, you know, it's $250 for Eldritch Moon or for Shadows of Rinistrad. But now with the uh, printing of the Masterpiece series, you know, that ticks down. So it's not 250 bucks as a collection of these cards, but now it's like, 225 or like 210 so there's just less total value kind of that we're working with the lows are going to be lower 
Um, and even the, the peaks aren't going to be quite as high as they were, which kind of trims your margin. So there's still movement on card prices. A, a standard card that goes um, completely sleeper and then explodes in a standard deck is going to rise in price. It's not going to stop that. It's just, excuse me, it was going to be a little bit cheaper probably than it would have been. And also it's not going to reach quite as high as it did. So, um, you know, I think, I actually think that if anything, this pushes you back closer to, to Moto because uh, your overhead costs, those sort of, you know, shipping and that type of thing is a flat rate in the real world. You know, whether I'm buying, whether the card I'm buying is 25 cents a piece or $10 a piece, you know, the, the shipping is never changing. But, um, you know, if my profit margins are decreasing a little bit, but that shipping isn't changing, it certainly it hurts a little bit more. So being in a digital space helps. But yeah, in general, you just you just kind of have a smaller pool to work with. So there's still opportunities to be made or money to be made and opportunities within standard, but they're just a little bit smaller. And I think that will be enough to put, you know, if we're talking about 20 percent there, um, you know, that's a that's a reasonably large chunk. I think you're going to squeeze a lot of people out who are just going to say, you know what, it's it's too risky for me to attempt this uh, because now when I miss it hurts still hurts. And when I'm successful, I don't make as much as I needed to. Yeah. I mean the, the, the guys I think it hurts the most is actually the, the dudes that are cracking, you know, two, three, four, five cases and trying to pre-sell on Twitter and Facebook and so forth. Because I think that the, the ability for them to get their full value um, is going to be injured when a lot of people are distracted by trying to save up money for their full set of, you know, other vile masterpieces or something that means those guys are not going to be chasing as many dollar cards and that that makes those dollar cards 50 cent cards um but that's exactly what i want like that nothing is sexier to me than being able to turn a double up into a quadruple up by the card moving from a dollar to 50 cents when it's you know underestimated or missed um as a potential future combo piece or uh, a creature that's going to get more valuable once its compatriots are printed in the next set etc so i mean i think that the, the world that we're living in now with the, the masterpieces, you know, here are the numbers I'm working within. Rares, you you want to target a dollar and a 50 cents is even better. And you, you're looking to get out in the three to four dollar range. Um, and if you're lucky, five to six. But, you know, that's going to be harder to find. Um, but I'm thinking about cards like, you know, Crush of Tentacles. There, you know, opportunities to get in at, you know, 50 cents and get out at four bucks by trading out through Puka Trade. I'll do that all day, every day. And, you know, I continue to see success on that with or without expeditions. Um, and I think that that's about, you know, doing your research, playtesting the crap out of cards when they're revealed and getting a sense for how powerful they really are. So you can figure out what to target early before everybody else's catches on. Um, far from it being the death of that, I think that we are, you know, in the infancy of trying to develop systems by which we can uh, accommodate that. The, the vast majority of pundits in the MTG finance space still seem to make their judgments about cards based on loose talk during podcasts. Um, and very rarely do I hear any of us talking about how we spent four hours this afternoon playtesting a new card and getting some kind of sense of its real power level. Yeah, that's not happening. <laughs> Just no, nobody's doing that. Uh, you're right. And, and I, I'm not saying that this is at all the death of some sort of, of you know, finance, whatever you want to call it. And um, it's it's just it's it, it, but it is a change. You know, it is changing the face of it a little bit. Um, it, it, it's different. So and I think it will end up squeezing a couple of people out of it. It doesn't mean that it's less profitable, uh, but it will be perhaps a little more challenging. I think. Well, I think one of the things I think that's important to note is that you can't really go for a shotgun approach 
Um, and it's worth noting, um, you know, Chaz pointed out on Twitter, you know, look at the price of uh, return to Ravikna boxes, still pretty much sitting at $90 and almost nothing from that set is, has been a strong mover lately. That's true. Um, but Ravikna was, I think, uh, printed at extremely high levels um, yeah. and and was was kind of the set where the print run was, did not match demand. I, th- I think that supply overstripped demand on that particular set because I think that was the turning point where the growth curve on Magic slowed. They were experiencing very explosive growth. They were trying to print to accommodate what they were expecting that year. And I think that's the year, you know, three years ago, um, where things turned the corner and it and it backed off. And I think that that's hurting the, the those sets. Um, it, it also doesn't help that they don't have, um, you know, super chase cards to go after. Like I would equivocate uh, Return to Ravnica with uh, Battle for Zendikar. I think in the long term, they, they may end up having the, the same number of, uh, you know, playable staples in multiple formats that people are chasing. Um, and I think that's different than some of the, you know, winter or spring or summer small sets um, where, you know, I think things like Eldritch Moon um, have, uh, and Oath of the Gatewatch, uh, which I think was truncated, whose sales I think were truncated by Eldrazi Winter, um, you know, have a better chance of generating staples. So fall sets in general um, have been bad for a while and I think will continue to be bad. Uh, this doesn't make them any better. One of the other dimensions that was has been explored in multiple quarters, though, was this concept that um, because, the, because of the number of reprints or the dedication to frequent reprinting that Wizards is exhibiting this year, um, it somehow makes it hard to make money mid to long term. Um, and I just don't get that at all. Um, the Yes, we are getting more and more reprints, and that uh, leaves the potential for something like Noble Hierarch to plateau for less time. But... Noble Hierarch's a great example. This this is a card that was uh, printed at Codflux and then reprinted again in, in Modern Masters 2015. And here we are, you know, only a year and a bit out from that printing, and it's already spiking again. So yes, we're getting reprints all the time, but it's not the same reprints. Like we're not going to get Noble Hierarch again in Commander in December, and then again as a, a masterpiece in the spring. We're going to get you know each reprint still in a three to five year bracket because. There is some kind of a tipping point. Like if you were to say um, republish the uh, the full bevy of Zendikar lands, uh, Zendikar expeditions again in the Egyptian block next spring, you know that would be too much. Like there, there would the the ex, the price on those exp, the floor on those expedition, expeditions would fall out uh, beneath it, and they would suddenly become uh, much less desirable. And they also start. Um, kind of undermining the value of pack foils and even regular editions. Because, it, you know, if, if you print um, premium foils enough, people will that are serious about uh, formats like Modern and EDH and Cube will just target those all the time and ignore the other cards. Um, one of the things that was interesting I saw in the Ben Blyweiss's uh, article uh, about the financial updates um, uh, on their pricing for Kaladesh, he kind of diverged into a discussion of whether it was relevant to just remove pack foils from standard legal sets completely. And I thought that was actually one of the more fa- fascinating commentaries I'd seen on the issue anywhere. Um, his premise was basically that um, the value of pack foils used to be reliably a two times multiplier. Um, versus the regular price. So if a card was $5, the pack foil would be $10. And now it's trending overall down to about 1.5. Um, so a $5 card might be a $7.50 foil. Um, and that's certainly something I, I can confirm and have seen uh, in you know, the trends that I track. 
Um, and so he was saying, you know, like maybe foils would be better off if they were only ever used as masterpiece and or FTV and or, you know, LGS related promo foils. And, you know, we just didn't have the foils in, in, in the packs. Um, and in terms of the value for foils, I think it makes sense that that would be a great approach. But as you were saying, that works, you know, totally counter to the whole premise of reducing the cost of standard. Okay, well, you just talked for eight minutes straight. <laughs> I'm not, not quite sure how to uh, how to respond to all of that. Um, uh, you know what? Here's what I'm going to tell you. We've been at this for quite some time, and if this is going to get posted tonight, we have to end this. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah, okay. Uh, so thank you for your uh, exuberant pontification there, James. Uh, where can our loyal listeners find you? As per usual, you guys can find me on Twitter at MTG Critic, as well as via my occasional articles on mtgprice.com. And I'm Travis Allen, Wizard Bumpin, B-U-M-P-I-N on Twitter. And I write every Wednesday on mtgprice.com on the ProTrader side. And I am on the mostly weekly webcast Cartel Aristocrats. And I'd like to also re- remind our listeners to check out the mtgprice.com ProTrader service. For just $4.99 a month or $49.99 per year, you can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MTG finance minds in the business, and a sweet set of online collection management and buy list tools that will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of episode 33 of MTG Fast Finance. It was an especially uh, enlightening an informative episode this week. Uh, so thanks for thanks for joining me, James. Thanks, Travis, and we'll see all you guys next week on another episode of MTG Fast Finance. Mm-hmm.